In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Underdog Show. Today, I have an incredible guest here with me. Gerald, how are you? I'm doing good. Super pumped to be here. Thanks. It is such an honor to have you here, my friend. What a beautiful, beautiful trajectory that you have. I know we've discussed quite a bit on our last call. And my biggest question to you, because you've had such a diverse range of things in life, right? What inspired you on your journey to where you are today? Yeah. So there's a couple answers to this question. And I knew this question was coming. So I'd really thought hard about it. And I almost want to start like the way an action movie starts, right? With that like big scene to kind of kick off the movie. There was kind of a, a seminal moment in my life. And, and I hate to even give this individual praise because it was despicable. But like effectively, when I was 24 years old, I was essentially exploited. Now, not not sexually exploited or anything like that, but I was put in a position where I was knowingly completely vulnerable and this individual had power over me and I was effectively exploited. And he explained to me as he was doing it that he was going to do it and that I was going to accept it. And uh, it was really, really unfortunate. And because of my life, my circumstances and everything like that, I had to, he was absolutely right, which made it all the more, you know, suck if you will, uh, to do that. But there is a silver lining in it. But so just to take you back for a minute, what, what's the situation? What's going on? So I'm 24 years old at this point. But if you back up, I had gone to uh, university in Massachusetts, put myself through school. Uh, I, I had a good family, but we just didn't have money to, to send me to school. So I, I put myself through college computer science degree. Now here's where you can tell that I'm young in this story. The years like, you know, it's early 2000s. For those in the audience who aren't familiar, they're younger or something. There was this thing called the dot-com boom. I mean, it was huge. Like if it plugged into the internet, it was going to be a multi-million dollar deal, right? And we even see this today, but like Yahoo was coming out, Google, like all, all these things, right? So if you had a computer science degree or you knew how to write code, you were basically like walking into $75,000, $85,000 jobs, which was pretty good at the time, right? Like minimum wage is probably three times what it is, or minimum wage today is three times what it is then, right? So I thought you just kind of, you know, walk out and they, you know, they're handing jobs out like at the, uh, like with the diploma, right? So I maybe hadn't taken college as serious. I took advanced classes in high school, AP, some college credit stuff. So I was an above average student. So I kind of just thought that college was an extension of that. Well, long story short, I party a little bit. I have some fun. Some of my friends are graduating and I'm not. And I'm confused what's going on. And I, I end up getting my act together and graduate a year late. No big deal. Well, I, I walk out of graduating and there's this, the perfect timing or the worst timing, if you will, where there was a massive, massive shift in software development jobs at this time to outsourcing to India. They were outsourced in other places, but a bulk of them were going to India, which is which is fine because from a capitalism and a business perspective, they were getting the same 
you know, these businesses were getting the same quality output at a cheaper labor rate, right? Which is what the free market dictates. So as I walk out to get handed this job, the jobs aren't there anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm stunned, right? And, and maybe if I was like a top tier 4.0, whatever, maybe they would have handed me one, but I wasn't. But I did have the degree. I knew how to engineer code. So I'm looking around, I'm looking around, and I can't find something. So I end up having to take a mason tender job, which if you're not familiar with that is, it's like literally carrying 50 pounds of bricks on either side to wherever the mason wants you to go and mixing cement. So very, very hard labor. Certainly don't need a computer science degree in order to do that work, but very, very humbling. And I did that for like maybe three or four months through, through the summer, right? Graduated in May through the summer. And I'm realizing this is terrible. I do not want to do this uh, for a living. And I finally, I, I'm applying to all these jobs. And, and just to point out a bit of adversity, I want to point out, because I, I have encountered some adversity, my support network, right? Which is mostly like aunts and uncles and stuff. And we can get into my personal family if, if the story goes there. But, you know, they're telling me, hey, like, just take a job, take any job. You don't want to do this. Like apply, work in finance, work as a secretary, work as shipping, sales, what, like all these things that was not what I just spent four years and my own money, right? I mean, I've got student loans. I haven't really paid the money, but it's my money for a degree that I wanted. And I, I'm being advised to take a job that does not use that. I was stubborn and obstinate that I was not going to do that. So I finally find this job as a software developer and I do all the things you're supposed to, right? Uh, suit and tie, appropriate letter, cover letter, get the meeting. And I go in, it's a small business, like 35, 35 to 50 employees. And the software that they're developing runs the business. It's like an in-house business solution. And they only have one developer on staff. He, he does the IT, he does the software and all that. And they wanted a second guy. Ultimately, I find out it's because they're going to fire this guy and they need a succession plan. But that aside, they said, all right, come on in here. So I do all my research too, by the way, Pam. I'm like, all the things you're supposed to do. What, what's the average right. salary for this location, for my experience level, for what they're asking me to do? To, also to the point where like they said, do you know this language? I said, no, I don't know that one. I learned it over the weekend, right? We talked on Friday, meeting on Monday. I learned it on the weekend. So I go in there, I'm, I'm just crushing it, crushing it. And they said, okay, like, I think you're, you're perfect for this job. I said, oh, that's good. They said, well, let's talk about salary. And this is where that moment happens, right? So I'd done the analysis and, you know, we're talking $80,000 jobs is like the going rate everywhere. I did a market analysis. I come down to the lower half of the bell curve. And I said, listen, I think, you know, based on everything, $40,000 is completely fair. Okay. Like it's, it's, it's below market value, but I, you know, I understand that you're a smaller business and all that. And the owner of the company leans over to me and looks me right in the eye and he says, absolutely no way. I'm going to give you $26,000 and you're going to take it because you are lugging bricks right now, which means you can't find a job, which means you need this job because you don't have any experience professionally. So that's actually what your compensation is going to be, the experience that you're going to get here. And I was, I, I said, okay, okay, I'm going to have to think about it and all this. And you know, the, the, the terrible painful reality of it was what I said at the beginning. He, he was right. And, and it really, really was a tough pill to swallow, but I wanted it. I wanted the field. I wanted that job. So I ended up taking it and I got one year of experience, which is what you want. Right. And like, basically on my one year, I, I quit, but as a silver lining, I do want to tell you that I started, let's say I started on Monday, 
November 1st or whatever. The following Monday, November 8th, my wife starts at that company. They're walking her around and uh, I meet her. I am just struck by a lightning bolt. And it's a really, really good story. But anyway, so one year to the date, I give my notice. I leave, take a job in DC, which again, like I'd already, I'd already told my now wife at that time that I was going away to DC and that I would be back and I would marry her, which is incredibly creepy if you're not like dating or anything, which we kind of weren't, but I was so certain and so enamored and so strong about that feeling that, you know, it's exactly what I did. So, so that was to say that that moment, that individual didn't inspire me. That moment inspired me, Pam, because ultimately at that moment, as I was reflecting on the drive home, I decided And this actually drives all of the decisions that I've made since then, professionally and personally. I decided at that moment that I would never be that vulnerable again. If I go get degrees, if I bust my butt, if I put myself in a situation, if I put my money away so I got financial stability, then nobody can ever tell me you're gonna like you're gonna take this exploitation and like it. And and fortunately, it built me up to what I am today. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, I can't think about ever taking advantage of a person like that. So hearing that, I'm like, ah, oh my God. <laughs> like, it just like, ah. Yeah, incredibly low EQ for sure. Oh. oh, when you have the capability to lift someone's life and you do that, it's like, oh, oh my gosh. But it does drive you though, doesn't it? When somebody just tells you like, oh, this is what you're worth. Here you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a harsh reality. And it's not something that, you know, you want your your parents to tell you that you're worthless and that and that's going to spurn you to make something of yourself. But it was a cruel reality from a person I had never met until that day, you know, and then I had to work with them (laughs) for a year. But I basically poured myself into my work. I was probably one of the better employees because I would just bust my butt. But the idea was that I was investing heavily into myself because you know every 8 hours of work that i cranked out i was getting better at programming in that language and understanding you know the the software models that we were using and i could market that right you know he he said it himself he said your experience is going to be your compensation so i said you know what fine like let's flip mm-hmm. let's flip the script let me just milk this job for as much experience as i can possibly pull out because it wasn't a paycheck it was a means to an end wow wow i love that you spun it into something positive though you know what i mean like that's that's huge. And you propelled yourself forward because of that drive. Cause they say, you know, that people are motivated in different ways. Right. And one of, and then I didn't realize that this was a motivation technique, but they say that aggravation actually does motivate some people. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel maybe my motivation technique is telling me I can't do something. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. Oh, you can't possibly do that. Can you, you know what I mean? And I never realized that that was like a motivation tactic that actually some coaches and some people out there actually utilize to motivate people like, oh, oh, it's okay. I didn't think you'd do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to run through a wall. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me? Back up. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. That's nuts. Wow. Wow. When you were mentioning that it hit a chord because I was told one time, so when I was in the restaurants before I got into real estate, I was told by a very close family friend, stick to ice cream because I owned an ice cream cafe at one point. And that like made me just motivated me to the next level. It's like, what? 
are you doubting the fact that I can actually be successful in this field? Is that, is that correct? Right. And then it just makes you want to run through it even, even more. So that's super interesting. Wow. Now question for you, when you were growing up as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, a comedian, actually, uh, I had actually considered going to like a theatrical high school, uh, for, for the arts to learn that technique. I'd done some stand-up comedy in my school during like talent shows and stuff like that. I mean, I thought I was a pretty funny guy. I was, I was pretty extroverted. I was lifting a lot of my material from professional comedians. I'll admit that now, I guess, uh, <laughs> in full disclosure, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed, I guess, just being extroverted and it was less about being the center of attention and more about social interaction. I'm very high on like the emotional. I love social interaction. I'm very open about how I feel and about my emotions and I share and just the social interaction has so much value and so much interaction. And I found by doing comedy, for lack of a better term, you're able to get this one-to-many relation. Whereas if you're doing theater or something, and I did some theater, but you're playing just a part of like a bigger thing of like a collective talking to a collective. Whereas the comedian, it's like you're jiving with this whole group of people. So that went really well. But, you know, I was real with myself that, you know, if you look at how many people grind on the comedy circuit, not that I was doing like deep financial analysis at this time, I was just a kid, but, or, you know, teenager, but, uh, looking at how much the likelihood of a successful career in comedy versus a successful career in computers, which is what I, you know, I got in a computer when I was 14 and really got into it and began to understand it, play games and stuff like that. So I felt it was probably in my best interest to, to kind of follow computers, which is why I went to computer science and uh, went that route is because I, I was naturally interested in them and, and um, had an affinity for understanding them. That's so cool. That's so cool. What inspired you down the comedy route though, as a kid? Well, because it just seems so, it's like two totally different worlds, the comedy and then the the software and the computer science. Yeah, no, I guess I was trying to lean into what I thought I was good at. You know, I mean, people would uh, enjoy and crack up around my comedy. You know, I, I guess I was really just extroverted around classmates and stuff like that. So it just seemed like one of those things where like, oh, if you're good at it, like, why not do it for a living? You know, probably the same way my kid is says he wants to be a professional video game player because, you know, that's all he likes to do is play video games. So I think maybe that was it. It's definitely wasn't rooted in any long-term financial stability or, or lifestyle. I, I could only imagine how tough it would be to live on the road and, you know, <laughs> be like that. Oh man, do you have any jokes? Do you remember any of like your best ones, the knee slappers? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I don't, I don't, Pam. I'm sorry. They've, they've been pushed away and put into a, like a trunk up in the attic with a bunch of you know, <laughs> mannequins around it and stuff like that. So I, I don't have any of that content right now. That's all right. If you think of a joke throughout our interview, just say, Hey Pam, I got it. And you could just bring it out. That's totally- okay. 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 Perfect. <laughs> I love that. I love it. And so who served as a role model for you growing up? Like who was your biggest source of inspiration? It might be more than one person or. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So what's interesting is, and this isn't to like elicit emotion or to elicit any type of sympathy. So when I was eight, my mom died kind of in a tragic accident. My dad remarried a couple of years later to a woman who wasn't really interested in uh, kids. So that wasn't really happening. My dad worked nights. So like he would sleep during the day. So there wasn't a lot of interaction. And I I just want to be crystal. Like my dad was uh, a good 
person. Like I had clothes, I had food, I had a home, you know, I wasn't like abused or put in any bad situations, but just there wasn't much going on there. Right. So my aunts kind of surrogated kind of a maternal aspect. One, one particular aunt like had a kid who's like one of my best friends. Now he's my cousin about my age. And uh, I would spend a lot of time with them, like sleep at their house, like all the time, especially because my dad's at, at work. So it wouldn't always make sense to have me home alone. So I had that all, but I, I do want to highlight one person who really was an external driver and influencer. And, and even to this day still is, although I, but my uncle Bill, very successful businessman. You'd love him, Pam. Restaurant industry, real estate industry, made a lot of money. And uh, it's like, the money's like nice and he has a nice house and cars and stuff like that. But like, he's more like business driven where like, he's interested in solving the problem of making a successful business, right? He's married to my blood aunt, right? So he's not blood related to me, although he's, you know, my uncle. But as I was coming up, you know, I'd be kind of, in, you know, making stupid decisions in college, like we kind of talked about earlier. And he would always introduce me as like, oh, this is my wife's nephew, right? Like he would almost not even acknowledge that we were related. And he was doing it to bust my chops, not to be uh, <laughs> insensitive, but just like, oh, he's like, you know, he's a, he's a stupid college kid. He makes dumb decisions. This is my wife's nephew. I would go live with them through the summers and I would go there on like holiday, right? Like Christmas breaks and stuff like that. They live in North Carolina. I lived in Massachusetts, right? But for these long periods of no school, it would be easier on my dad to have me kind of cared for by them. So this guy was in my life all the time. And my aunt, his wife, Susan, wonderful person, a lot of love for me, introduced me as her nephew, right? But my uncle would always kind of bust my chops. And I, I found myself seeking his approval and I would do something really good or whatever, but it would be a minor thing, like something good. And he'd be like, you'd be like, big deal. You were supposed to do that, right? So it kind of got, kind of got into me a little bit. And, you know, so he's always driving, right? Always driving me. Like he's been successful. I want to be successful. I've got this like situation now where like, I'm never going to be vulnerable again. What is success actually defined as? I get my bachelor's degree, right? So he's finally introducing me as his nephew, but he introduces me as his nephew who's got a master's degree. So I have to immediately tell the person he just introduced me to that I don't have a master's degree. Like that's how I'm having to introduce myself by like almost cutting myself down, right? But to be accurate, and he'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's right. You don't have a master's degree. So I go get a master's degree, okay, Pam? He introduces me as having two master's degrees, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I went and got a second master's because of this. I, I went and got it for professional development and, and it opened some doors for me, but I get the second master's. He introduces me as having a PhD. And uh, like at this point, I'm so aware of what he's doing. Like this is over the course of years, obviously, but like, I'm so aware of what he's doing. But in some primal way, I'm still seeking this man's approval, even though I'm telling him like, oh, like whatever, just suck it. And, and, but I still seek for it. And uh, so finally I get a PhD and I told him I'm done, you know? And he said, no, 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 no. Like I'm, I'm proud of you. Like, good job. So it literally took decades to get this man's approval. But I almost wonder if he knows that that is how he would drive me, right? Working in the restaurant industry, you, you work with a crosscut of all different people that you need to operate in the same direction. And maybe he just realized that and inspired me in that way. I love the man. I still talk to him today and I've got some business dealings and stuff like that. And I always call him to like celebrate the wins, even if it's like, you know, just like a, a client check I'm cashing or something like that. And he'll be like, all right, all right, all right. I see you, you know, so 
very, very yeah, inspiring. That's incredible, Gerald. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know that it's deeply personal, especially with your mom. So I appreciate you sharing that. But mm-hmm. I, I think what your uncle did was extremely intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I think he did that on purpose because he knew, obviously he was counting, you know what I mean? Because there's a reason why he went one right after the other. Because if so, he would have introduced you with a PhD from the very beginning, right? <laughs> there's this principle in um, NLP, Neuro Linguistics Programming, that I'm studying. It's called chunking up or chunking down, right? And chunking down is like kind of breaking it down more specifically. It's like breaking down your goals so that they're more achievable, right? Because if you were to introduce you straight with like a PhD from day one, you'd probably be like, I'm never going to get there right? But then yeah. you started with the masters and then the other masters, then PhD, you almost like broke it down for you, for you to get there, which I think is so cool. Wow. That's incredible. Now walk me through. So that first job that you explained that really kind of shook your world and how you moved on from it a year later, because you had said you left after a year. So what was your career trajectory sort of like after that experience? You know, where did you go to? Yeah. So, you know, one thing, and I know your audience is a cross cut of individuals, but one thing in, in the cybersecurity world that I work in right now, and I, I, I try to mentor at scale. We could talk about that later. But one of the things that I tell people is you have to network. You have to network. It is so important to finding a job is networking because in reality, if people know somebody that is qualified for the job, you know, in a good fit, they're more likely to just go directly than open a rack and, and then get a bunch of uh, applicants and have the person they know get in because it's just human nature. Like if I can solve my problem today, why would I solve my problem a month from now? Right. So, and that's, that's so important for networking. Well, this situation was kind of similar. I'm working at this business and uh, you know, my uncle, right. The same guy, he's got friends who work in the government in uh, DC There's a contract that one of these government people is over. Now this isn't nepotism. This isn't spoil system. I, you know, I wasn't given this opportunity, but the opportunity comes up on a software development team, making a solution for the Marine Corps. They needed actually two developers, but they needed a developer. Right. And my uncle said, well, he knows I'm unhappy at this job and what they've done to me and understands why I've taken it. He says, well, my nephew, or my, my aunt's nephew, he's a developer, he could do this. And they said, well, all right, well, just get us the resume. And so I put the resume in, like didn't even go through like a formal job posting type thing. It just got the resume to the friend. The friend gave it to the person who was actually leading the software team and said, does this guy qualify? Could he help you solve the problem? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Well, I flew down to DC, met with the team, we hit it off. And, you know, like maybe a week later, I gave my notice and split out of there. And I went down to DC, again, told my wife, uh, my not girlfriend at the time that I would be back. I had to do this because it was super important for my career to be able to get out of this small business and go to a large enterprise and get real, you know, real world experience and get contacts and do more networking and this type of thing. I go and do that. And uh, I did that for about a year and a half. The project was kind of winding down at that point where you kind of built the solution that we were going to build. And I had an opportunity to move back to Massachusetts, which, you know, my wife and I had been kind of long distance dating, which if you've ever done that, is kind of tough and it's challenging. And we had just really started connecting like right near the end. Like we had a strong attraction from the get go, but right near the end, it started getting real. And so I made a decision that, you know, like it's probably good for the long-term health of my relationship to this woman who I want to marry to move back. And I was able to move back within the same company and start doing like a system administration job, which is not software development, but it's still 
within the IT space and actually was taking advantage of some other aspects of my degree. So to me, I was diversifying my, my career experience because again, I don't ever want to be vulnerable. So you can't say I don't have experience doing this and this. I have more job opportunity because I'm more you know marketable, right? Right. Uh, so that's that's kind of how that went. And I did that for a few years. So let me tell you, before I leave that Marine Corps project in DC and move back to Massachusetts doing sysadmin, my software got audited by a, a company. And I'm taking a lot of pride in my work. I'm making great software. It's doing exactly what the requirements are, which is how you do software back in the day. And I failed this audit. And I said, what? How could I possibly fail this audit? No. And they're like, oh no, you didn't do this, this, and this. And all of this, this, and this was cybersecurity type controls, right? And I said, you know, when I went through my undergrad and learned how to be a software engineer, none of this was here. Like cybersecurity, while it's up in our faces today, wasn't really a thing. Like it existed, but it wasn't as mainstream as it was today as it was in the 90s when I was going through my degree. So, you know, I'm flabbergasted about all this, but so I'm like, is this is a this, how is this a thing? And uh, they're like, oh, it's a whole industry. And I, I said, oh, okay. So like it sparks my interest. And I end up going home and doing some research on this. And this is actually where I find my passion, right? I find my passion because I understand now that cybersecurity is like this huge field and there's like all sorts of like crazy cool things. And I'm like building this piece of software that's going to be used everywhere in the world by all the Marine Corps bases. Yet I'm building it in such a way that like really anyone could log into it, right? With a, a couple advanced techniques and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, like th this is amazing. I, got, I love this. I, I want I want to know more because it's like an, a complicated puzzle. So that's the moment that my passion for cybersecurity is birthed. For the audience, if you don't know me, like I am like beyond like passionate about cybersecurity, everything cybersecurity. That's what my PhD is in, is in cybersecurity operations. Uh, like, it's just, oh, it's so good. So I go back to sysadmin stuff, which is still in the same vein, makes me marketable. But I'm also, from a cybersecurity perspective, you're more effective if you have kind of IT experience. And I've got that and software engineering. So I end up uh, working in that space for a few years. I move over, Sarbanes, like Tyco and Enron blow up and do all their things. So Sarbanes-Oxley legislation comes out, which requires audit work, which is kind of like a people in my industry will call it like a trashy way to get into the industry, but I go that route and I start doing audit work on IT systems, which is effectively like a cybersecurity bend, but a great entry point. So I, I do that for a bit. And then I just want to share this with you because I love this. This is my first cybersecurity job. I'm working at this place, working at this place. They finally go bankrupt, right? The company that I went to in, D in DC, they finally go bankrupt in like 06, 07. And I'm looking for a job. And I'm walking my dog down the street. I, this is like a little town. Walk my dog down the street. And I walk past like this uh, repurposed mill. That's like small businesses kind of, but uh, business to business businesses, not storefront business. And one of the signs says TBG security. Is that a cybersecurity company? What is that? So I, I literally just walk in, right? It's not a storefront. I just like knock on the door. They're like, hello. It's two guys in there. One's a business guy. And the other guy's a cybersecurity pen tester guy. And they're like, hello. And I'm like, are you guys, we call it information security at the time. Are you guys information security professionals? They're like, yeah. I'm like, I want to work here. And they're like, well, we're not hiring. I'm like, well, can you just tell me everything? They're like, okay. So we sat there for like an hour and a half. They told me everything that, you know, answered every question. I mean, I had like a voracious appetite of like, you know, cause I don't have a mentor or anything. I, I just have all these questions that I can't get answers to. 
and uh, they're giving me everything and I'm just like drinking it up. It's awesome. It's like full, full body massage of, of answers. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Give it to me. And so I leave and they end up calling me like maybe a week later and you know, I'm like looking for jobs on monster.com. And like, they call me a week later, like, Hey, we just want a big contract. Like we could use a junior guy on the project. What do you think? And I'm like, okay. Right. So like, like <laughs> there's like no benefits is nothing. It's like a 1099 cash only, but I'm like, I'm in, I'm in, I want it. I want it. And uh, so I, I did that for like, whatever the project I think was maybe nine months long at that point. Now I'm like fully working cybersecurity and I'm all in. Uh, yeah, it, it was good. It was pretty good. And then just to round out the story, once that project ends, my wife and I were living together at this point, we're engaged to be married. And I decide uh, it's too cold in Boston. That's where we're living. It's too cold. We just pick a map out. We each get one requirement. We pull a map out. What's your requirement? Hers is live in the East Coast. Uh, hers is live on the beach. And mine is live where it doesn't snow. And we both agreed that we would have kids. So we'd want to stay on the East Coast time zone. So we literally run our finger down a map until we get to where it stops snowing and the beach, right? So you just run it down the coast. And the first place we stopped was Wilmington, North Carolina. I spent one week looking for a job. Didn't find one move on to the next town, Charleston, South Carolina, spend one week looking for a job, get a job, interview, hired, like maybe three weeks later, I move ahead of my wife. And uh, maybe six weeks later, I, I got an apartment, I got landed, she comes down, and the rest is, you know, history, like we're here, this is what we did. That's amazing. That's amazing. I love the trajectory. And I love how you just you just walked in. You're like, oh, this looks cool. Let me just walk in and say what's up. It's so underestimated to just be present, to show up and be like, hey, and ask questions, right? Because a lot of people don't. You know, and I, I really feel like it wasn't like, oh, I'm just looking for a job. It's, you know, I was super motivated, super interested. And I think it was very obvious to those guys. Uh, I'm still friends with those guys today. They went to my wedding. It's your attitude. It's the proactivity. It's the initiative. And, and Pam, I want to pull back from, from what I mentioned earlier about having that computer science degree and not listening to my support network when they're telling me to just take any job and move on with my life. Like I wanted to work in cybersecurity. I knew it. I knew it as soon as I started finding out about it. And I wasn't going to, I'm unemployed at this moment. I'm not going to take any job just to pay the bills. Like I'm going to find a cyber job. And, uh, you know, fortunately I banked some money, right? Going back to that, never being vulnerable again. So now I, I'm getting to control my life instead of being forced to make concessions that I'm not comfortable with and effectively being, you know, exploited by the system, if you will. Right. So being in the cybersecurity field that I'm sure a lot of people misconstrue a lot of things about it. Yeah. What are like some of the most common myths and what's your best advice? Oh, well, I think the number of truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so there, there's like two major myths, I guess. One of them is like incredibly popularized by Hollywood. Everybody seems to think that like, you know, the hoodie, you know, dark room and like all you do is like a keyboard and like you hit like five things and you're in to like whatever it is you're in. Uh, that doesn't happen that way. And it certainly doesn't look nearly as cool as they make it look on the screen. There's definitely no like animated Pac-Man eating the screen or you know, like access tonight, access tonight, access granted, you know, none of that happens. So, but I'll tell you what, if they made a Hollywood movie and used how it really looks, it would be like really boring and no one would go 
look at it, but it is cool when you do like break into something. But so that's one myth. And then the other myth is kind of tied to that same element of, of penetration testing, which is that particular area of the field. A lot of people want to get into cybersecurity because they see penetration testing, Mr. Robot, for example, and they're like, oh my God, I can basically be like a criminal or, you know, do kind of like cool cloak and dagger spy stuff and get paid for it. And you can, right? There's a whole industry for it. But the reality is it's like, that's maybe like 10% of our industry and the other 90% doesn't do stuff like that. So a lot of people misunderstand what the field is and what really what the depth and breadth of the field is. And, you know, once they get into it, uh, they can almost get overwhelmed where they're like, oh my God, like I didn't realize it was all this. And, you know, there's getting to be more jobs of the penetration testing variety, but a lot of times, or historically there hasn't been that many jobs. So, and there's a lot of people wanting to do it because it is the coolest part of our industry. So that's really probably uh, two of the misnomers uh, or, or myths uh, perpetrated, but yeah. So cool. So cool. It's so interesting to me because, you know, when, when you're not in the industry and you just see it from the outside looking in, you're just like cybersecurity. It's like, I just, you think about anonymous and how you can hack into all these things. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> just like you said, in a dark room, just going like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, at this point, uh, the, it used to be like that, right? Like in the eighties and nineties, it was, it was very much like that, which is part of the reason why the whole myth uh, came to be. But at this point, the cyber criminal organizations are advanced and they're almost like businesses. Like you and I get dressed in the morning and go to the office. Like they do too. They have numbers that quarterly numbers they got to hit and recruiting and retention and attrition for staff and stuff like that. I mean, it's really evolved into, I mean, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise. So you, you have to imagine that they need to manage it a certain, with certain expectations. Yeah. And what are some of the most practical things to know about cybersecurity? Just like the average person that they should know, because I feel like there's a lot to know about this. Oh, Our world becomes more digital, you know? Yeah, it's funny you say that. So I, I do go out in the community and offer like basically pro bono talks to like, you know, healthcare groups or uh, chamber of commerce and stuff like that. And I'll always share best tips and I'll give you a couple right now, but usually I walk them through like what is really going on. And it's, I know it's almost perverse, but like watching their faces just like shock and awe. And like, and usually there's a couple who are like, just like, oh my God, like, no, I, I can't, I can't with this. Like it's, it's actually kind of, fun. But so really the number one thing that really anyone should do, anyone listening to this should do is enable something called multi-factor authentication. It comes in various forms, but just put simply, everybody uses username and password, right? Like everything you log into probably has a password at this point. Well, multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication is something that you can kind of toggle on and it's account specific. So you'd have to toggle it on at your bank account. You'd have to toggle it on for your email account. But it's a second form of basically verifying that your identity, the person logging in, is in fact you versus a criminal versus a threat actor of some sort. And it can come in different ways. It can be a text message. It can be you know a six-digit number on an app that rotates, which is a pretty common a super effective way. It can even be an email. I implore people to put multi-factor on the following things. Definitely your bank accounts, right? So your personal banking, your business banking, if you have that. Also put it on your email because if you think about it, when you go to reset your password because you forgot your password, yeah. it typically sends an email with a hyperlink that you click on and it allows you to change your password. So if you've put multi-factor on your Capital One bank account, 
and I get into your email, I'll just go reset your Capital One bank account password and turn off multi-factor and then walk right in, then change your password and lock you out of your account. And I've already locked you out of your email also at this point. And if you've ever tried to like convince Google, like, hey, like call someone at Google right now, like you can't, right? So you have to have all these mechanisms in place to kind of make sure that you're protecting yourself from bad stuff happening because it, it does happen uh, quite often, unfortunately. Right, right. That's, oh man. And like I said, as our world starts to go more and more digital, you got to protect yourself, right? You got to protect yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, you should, you should, I, I know it's inconvenient, but like, you know, putting a pin on your phone, for example, right? Like that's, I know it's inconvenient because it's just cooler to like swipe your phone up, but like you leave that in an Uber. And if you don't have the pin on there, the second you leave it in the Uber, you're like, oh my God, what was on there? What could they do? Like you have to think through everything. If you put a pin on it, yeah, you're out of phone. I'm sorry. But like you can like peace of mind and just walk away, right? Like there's nothing there. The phone's encrypted because the pin's on there. No one's going to get the pin. There you go. So, you know, an ounce of prevention. Unfortunately, in my industry, a lot of people don't see the value in cybersecurity, right? No, I'm not saying they don't see any value. They don't see the true value of it, right? But when they get breached or they get compromised or they get ransomware, they overcompensate because they see the value in it. It happens time and time again. You'll see, like, you could pay me, let's just say, you could pay me $200,000 for a year of work and I could get you in a really great place, but you don't pay me. And then a, a year goes by and nothing happens, but a year and one day, and you're like, oh, we saved 200 grand. Great for the bottom line. But a year and one day, you get ransomware for $4 million. Like maybe you could talk the threat actors down to $2 million. You're never going to talk them down to 200,000, right? So it's always hindsight, right? It's always crystal clear in the rearview mirror when you're looking at what you could have paid versus what you end up paying retroactively. So anyways, I'll tell you what, just like- I'm like, hold on. I'm like, hold on. There's questions here. Ransomware. What does that mean? Like they literally will attack all your stuff and you have to pay a ransom? Like, oh my! Oh yeah! Cool? Yes. So, uh, thanks. Really? Great, great question, Pam. Oh yeah, this is actually the number one. This is the number one malicious attack in the world today, and you could argue it's like the number one and number two because it's that prevalent. So, real quick, with the idea of cryptocurrency being anonymous, right? It's very easy to transfer money. Uh, or have money transferred to you and not have it traced to you, right? So you, the whole idea is like you can extort people or hold ransom and they can't get to you. Okay, so Colonial Pipeline just happened the other day. That was a pretty big major news story. That was ransomware. Pretty much every major cyber story right now is ransomware. Here's what ransomware is. We use encryption, you know, good people use encryption to protect files from them being accessed, right? So I send you a file, Pam, I encrypt it because it's my tax returns or whatever. And I don't, if, if, if someone gets your phone, someone gets in your email, they can't see it, right? Because it's encrypted. So threat actors have figured out, well, this is super effective. So what they do is they go, they break into the system, right? They either steal your username and password or they guess your username or password. There's a million ways to get into your system. They get in and then they deploy ransomware, which basically runs through and encrypts every single file on your computer, pictures, music, ledger, accounts payable, everything. It leaves your operating system intact because it needs to boot up for the following. All your data is encrypted. If it can find a file server, by the way, you're really screwed. So it'll it'll write a note to your desktop that says, open me. And when you open it, you're going to crack up with this. When you open it, it says, 
hi, all of your data has been encrypted. For a fee, we will give you the keys to decrypt it and go to this website to get more information, right? Now, this is where you're going to crack up. You go to the website. The website will tell you how much the ransom is. Now, oftentimes, threat actors will do their research to understand what how much your business can actually pay. They're not going to ask my small business for a $4 million ransom, but they will ask Colonial Pipeline, which had a $1.5 billion revenue in 2020 that you can Google on the internet for a $4 million ransom, and, and they'll pay that, right? But they might charge me $18,000, right? So, so they, they make realistic ransom amounts. You go there and you know, I don't know if you know how to open a Bitcoin wallet, Pam, but if you don't, this is the part that's going to kill you. They literally have customer support, live chat with a customer support rep from the criminal enterprise who will walk you through how to sign up and get a wallet. And if you want to negotiate with them, they'll have someone who represents a negotiator come on from their criminal enterprise and, and kind of talk through what kind of number you're going to settle on. Because you almost always negotiate with the ransom actors at this point. Then you make the transfer, which is like a wire transfer effectively, and they send you the keys and you hope the keys work. Now, granted, it's in their best interest for the keys to work because word gets out that like Pam's ransom group doesn't give the keys, then there's no point in paying the ransom anymore, right? You just rebuild from, from scratch, which is another option, right? You could just not pay the ransom and rebuild from scratch. But what we're beginning to find out or what we've found out is businesses, there's two things. One, maybe they're not even doing backups or the backups haven't been working. So you don't even have anything to back up from. Or, and this is a, re a reality of IT that a lot of people don't comprehend is like, let's say I encrypt three sites, right? You got three business sites and a thousand computers, right? It takes time to rebuild all those computers, like weeks. You need humans to rebuild them. It's not like you just, it's not a Disney movie. You don't snap your fingers and it's just done. So how much time, what's the lost revenue? How much does it cost in labor to hire those people? How much reputational damage are you doing by being out of business? Do you have any responsibilities to third parties that you've obligated yourself to that has financial penalties if you do not meet those SLAs, et cetera? You literally have to do a calculus and figure out, is this financially prudent for us to not pay the ransom or, to, or is it cheaper to pay the ransom? And again, the threat actors do their homework. They're very sophisticated now. And they pick a value that is within your wheelhouse and makes it, you know, they try to find that sweet spot where it's more valuable to pay them than to not pay them. And, and that's what ransomware is. And that's why it's so wildly popular right now. Pam, it's even gotten to the point where these ransomware threat actors, the really sophisticated ones, have actually built affiliate programs where they'll host the entire infrastructure and do the, the financial transactions and everything. And all you have to do is an affiliate. All I have to do is send Pam malicious email and get Pam to open it and run it on her computer. And if I can take over Pam's computer or Pam's business and you pay the ransom, then I get a cut of like 85% of whatever the ransom was paid. And the threat actor group gets 15% as a kind of infrastructure management expense. That's where we're at at this point. Oh my God. Oh, wow. That's insane because I've heard the term ransomware and I never knew what that was. Oh my gosh. Important for anyone listening, especially as a business owner, you guys better protect, 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 because these people are not playing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's, it's Atlanta got shut down a couple of years ago. They take out municipalities because they have very little in the way of like cybersecurity investment. It gets way worse too. Like you might think I'm a small business, no big deal. Right. But the threat actors have also realized that some people aren't paying the ransom anymore. So they'll exfiltrate your data. They'll take a copy of it before they encrypt it. 
And then they'll say, well, if you don't pay the ransom, we'll either release the data or your emails or something, because maybe it's embarrassing. We'll sell it to your competition, right? Maybe you've got intellectual property or some business market advantage. We'll sell it to your competition or we'll sell it on the dark web, right? Maybe they get your username and passwords and stuff like that. We'll sell it on the dark web and we'll tank your reputation with your customer base because we've basically breached all of their data on your behalf. So they're very, I know it sounds despicable and deplorable, but like, I hate to say it, but you got to like tip your hat. Like they're very, very thorough and very thoughtful about how to force your hand into giving them money. Right. It is so nuts to me. I'm like taking this all in. Oh my gosh. To, back to your question. This is the, the last question and my favorite question, which is, you know, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now, aside from <laughs> cybersecurity, ransomware stuff? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It's so funny because when I was younger, I really thought I had it figured out. I thought I was, you know, hot stuff and I was just, I was an idiot. I was just an idiot. I think if I could go back and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing because I'm very, very satisfied with my life and and how, uh, you know, my family and how things have turned out for me. But I think I would go back and say, you know, why are you being an idiot? Like, stop being an idiot. Like, I, I'd probably use the same kind of motivational technique that I have now, or at least now that I'm aware of, of telling me that I can't do it. It's like, yeah, just keep, keep doing what you're doing because you're not, you're obviously not going to be successful or something to that effect. I certainly wouldn't go back and say, keep doing what you're doing. Cause it's going to turn out all right. Cause that would have just enabled me. Yeah. I, I think that that, that would be the, what I would go back and say, and, and maybe, <laughs> maybe I should, I would tell myself to invest in Netflix instead of Fannie Mae. Cause I did that where Netflix was like, <laughs> like $5 a share and Fannie Mae was $5 a share. And then the housing crisis happened and I lost all that money and Netflix turned into Netflix. Uh, but yeah, maybe a little like back to the future uh, to kind of <laughs> uh, financial advice for the future. Yeah. I love it, Gerald. I love it. And now what's going on in the next six to 12 months in your world? I really obviously love cybersecurity. I, I work at nine to five, but on the, on the side or whatever, you know, I have a, a YouTube channel which really gives to the community called Simply Cyber. So if anyone listening is interested in cybersecurity or learning how to get into cybersecurity, check check that out for sure. But through that vehicle, I've met tons of people and I'm gonna I'm continuing to grow the channel. I'm continuing to collaborate with people. Uh, but one one individual that I met along my journey, very excited. She was a guest of yours, Jack Scott, that incredible story of Jack Scott, special forces and just, you want to talk about blasting through adversity. I'd recommend anyone listen to that particular episode. She and I, and uh, two other individuals actually wrote a book called Cybersecurity Master Plan. It really is kind of just complementing what I'm doing on the YouTube channel altogether. It's literally a step-by-step -step blueprint on how you can go from figuring out if cybersecurity is a good fit for you all the way into like leveling up your career and mentoring people who are trying to get into the field, like basically a full circle thing where you can have the whole package, the whole career that book is written to provide that knowledge. I love that, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now we've got to know where to find you and your awesomeness so we can keep up with all the amazing work that you're doing. Oh yeah. I, I welcome anyone to reach out to me. I love, love. So, you know, like going back to the comedian days, like I love social interaction. Yeah. So you can get me on LinkedIn. I'm definitely there all the time. So Gerald Ozier, A-U-G-E-R, I'm always on there kind of contributing and interacting with the community. 
Uh, on YouTube, as I mentioned, Simply Cyber is my YouTube channel. I do have a Twitter account. It's Gerald underscore Osier. They all kind of link to each other, but I, I'm less active on Twitter. I'm kind of one of the rare InfoSec people who's less active on Twitter. This is quite a quite a popular platform for InfoSec people. That's basically the best places to get me. And if if you tell me, mention that you heard me on this show, I'd love to connect and get your thoughts and help you if cybersecurity is your bag, right? I think that's how I'm, I'm best equipped to help people is if they want to either get into cybersecurity or really understand how it could be a passion. And really, like, I don't work. Like, I live my passion and I get paid for it. And it's awesome. I love that. Joe, thank you so much for sharing all of that. It was such an honor to have you here today. Thank you so, so much, my friend. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode. Oh,